Um, you ever felt like uh, your sacrifices weren't appreciated? Thanks, Ken. Um, you know when you're feeling that way because uh, as a distinct sensation, it's called self-pity. Um, but uh, I, uh, I was driving around on Friday. Um, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Mary Joy, needed some kind of legal paperwork things that she's been asking us to get her to the post office for for quite a while. And so on Friday, I don't, I don't normally get a normal day off on Friday. I try and catch up on a lot of things. And, and so I took some time thinking I would help Mary Joy get caught up on that. Uh, it wasn't what I went to bed Thursday night thinking about, but it felt, felt like the right thing. So about 2 o'clock, um, drove to the post office. We live on the south end of town. And if you haven't noticed, um, traffic in Bend is horrific. It's a joke. Um, these days, it feels, it feels like, a, like getting all the way south of town, and there's really no natural exit, so you, you're driving 3rd Street the whole way. It's pretty, it's pretty bad. Um, so we, st- we left it too. Went all the way down there, uh, and she's 15 and a half, so both parents need to be there. And Tamara realized right when we got there that we were forgetting that another daughter needed to be somewhere like in 5, 10 minutes. So we jump in the car, uh, and we, we both go flying back um, to do different things. Went to the house to pick up, well, I don't know what it was, pen, something like that, um, and take Mary Joy back. So if you're counting, that's two, three legs. And we get back to the post office, we stand in line, we get to the counter, and the lady at the counter is, uh, looks at us with this kind of um, awe that we don't have the paperwork filled out and that we don't have the right forms of ID. And so this is something Mary Joy has been waiting on for, this is, a, this is the self-pity side note, uh, for, for months. And so, you know, Mary Joy has been involved, my wife's been involved, my mom's been involved. I think all of you in the church have been involved in some way and nobody, nobody saw fit that the right forms were going to be there. So I started taking uh, that as an excuse to feel sorry for myself. So then we go back to get the... By the time we finish uh, at five-something, I've, I've now driven back and forth um, three times to six different times, right? And there went my, my afternoon. And we had somewhere to be at 5.30 um, to hang out with some, some friends. And so it's just this crazy thing. And uh, that felt like sacrifice to me. And it was interesting because... It felt like an incredibly big sacrifice, which made part of me feel like there needed to be some incredibly big payback. Um, and that if somehow the payback wasn't there, and, and if it wasn't in, in the right amount, then, then somehow I was losing, or I, I was supposed to be frustrated, or, or I was supposed to feel bad for myself. Does that make sense? Um, do any of you parents feel like that? Because I know when you tell people, even people that have had kids, that you're tired, you don't really feel like they empathize with you. Because there's something different about me remembering what that was like, you know, 10 years ago, and you being in the moment experiencing what, it, what this past week felt like not sleeping, right? And even in sharing about it and that you're, you're doing this and going through it, you don't feel like I'm going to fully empathize with it. And so we have this struggle, like what do we do with that sacrifice? 
What do we do with the sacrifices when we're older? What do we do with the sacrifices for our job, for our faith, for our friends, for our family? And when we give and give and we don't really feel like we understand how that fits into the life we should be living. And it, and it can be pretty, pretty painful um, as I've been reflecting on it. And so this morning we are going to do a really, really, really deep dive into a passage of Scripture that might be new to some of you, might be familiar or older to others, um, but it's a fascinating little piece of Scripture that comes right in Romans chapter 12, and it's fascinating because after 11 chapters, which for a, a New Testament letter is, is really long, this whole book is 15 chapters, they didn't have chapters back then, um, they would have just written and written, uh, much later, just to make it easier to navigate, uh, chapters were added and then verses were added. And by the way, I got that wrong. That's why I was checking. It's 16 chapters. Um, but Romans is a really long letter. And so in this 16-chapter letter, which is very long for the time, you, you have the bulk of it, the first 11 chapters, building some kind of a theological case about our relationship with God, what God has done, what that means, who we are, what our identity is. And then we get to chapter 12, and it begins with this really giant word, therefore. And so what that signals is this huge shift from theology and identity and all this stuff to a real practical kind of exploration which is going to begin here in chapter 12 and carry all the way forward to the end of the book. And so if we put it back on the screen, I'll read it one more time and it says this, therefore I urge you, so with all the energy that comes from all those 11 chapters of, of arguing theology, I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is your true and proper worship. So if I were to just break that verse down a little bit, the idea is because God has shown us mercy, because of the cross, because of forgiveness, because of God's love, because of all that, that is true theologically, then the right thing to do is to offer our bodies, to offer ourselves, to offer our lives as living sacrifice. So in, in the Old Testament, you had this idea of a sacrifice and it would be killed on an altar. And, and the, the blood was the symbol of life, which when blood was shed meant that, that, that we were cleansed, that sins were forgiven, that a life for a life, that whole kind of an idea. And so you had this happening on an altar, and when you made a sacrifice, somehow you were able to come closer to God uh, or, or understand your sinfulness and be able to have that conversation with God different than you would if you just walked up to God casually and didn't take serious sin. And so because of what God has done with the seriousness of sin— and he's forgiven us, shown his love, we therefore should meet him at the altar and put our lives on the altar. But now it's not a life being killed because Jesus has died for our sins. It's a life offered up, but that walks off the other side of the altar. We, we offer it up, but we walk off the other side as a living sacrifice, not a sacrifice that's killed, as a living sacrifice moving forward into our life. That's what Paul's talking about. And he says, you should offer your life thusly, because this is the appropriate or, or acceptable or pleasing or right form of worship. And that's an interesting um, 
that's an interesting word that shows up there, that word worship, that somehow in offering all of who I am to God as a sacrifice, by the, other, uh, by the way, the other, the other word um, that can describe what's going on here for sacrifice is victim. So the, the Greek kind of concept of sacrifice is also victim. Uh, it's used differently uh, throughout Scripture, but this idea of the victim or the sacrifice being put on the altar, and so you're going to put yourself or your victimhood on the, the, the altar, and that that's worship. Now, if we have this idea of worship being singing, which I think is prevalent in American culture, we use the word worship very synonymous with kind of uh, adoring or in, in Christian circles, religious circles, much more with this idea of singing praise songs, that can be a bit confusing. That this is somehow my celebratory um, praising of God. So let's look a little deeper at that word worship and try and unpack what Paul is saying. Now in the Greek New Testament, there are three different words that we translate as worship in the English language. And the one that is uh, most often translated that way is a word, Greek word called proskuneo. And we can put it on the screen here, but this basically means reverence or homage by kissing a hand, prostrating oneself, or adoration. It shows up 60 times, primarily or almost exclusively, in the Gospels or the book of Revelation, which is kind of a vision, apocalyptically, of end times as we come to the throne in heaven. And so this idea of, of actually prostrating yourself, so being on your knees, much more like a Muslim prayer would be, and frankly, um, the, the way the New Testament people of God would have prayed would probably look a lot more like the way Muslims would have prayed. On their knees, with their arms out, prostrating themselves before God and laying bare their emotions. We don't understand the, the body language part of prayer that was a part of the early church. So this is kind of this, this real paying homage to or prostrating oneself. It's the most frequently used form of worship. So 1 Corinthians 14.25 says this, And the secrets of his heart are laid bare. Thus he will fall on his face and worship. And you can see there uh, the Greek, the transliteration of the Greek, and then the actual Greek um, juxtaposed. And uh, they will worship God, declaring God is really among you. So they're going to fall on their face and worship prostrate themselves, adore God, and say, God is really among you. Matthew 28, 17. And when they saw him, this is after Jesus has come back, uh, resurrected from the dead. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some hesitated. Now, if we have the, the idea of worship as singing songs, we're not gonna understand what's going on here. When they saw him in kind of the, the awe or the fear of this, this crazy thing, they fell down and they worshiped him. They, they prostrated themselves before Jesus. The second form of the word worship that we see in the New Testament is this Greek word of sebo. And sebo is used 10 times and it means to stand in awe uh, or reverence, um, and to adore. And it's primarily something that's used in the Gospels again and now in the book of Acts. And ten times we, we see it and, it, and uh, it shows up in Mark, and here's an example of it. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Actually, that's Matthew, sorry, Matthew 15. 
In vain do they worship, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So this is kind of a teaching passage and saying, Jesus is saying that their worship or their relationship with God, the way they picture God, um, how they're tuning into God is actually not a faithful way of worshiping or adoring or reverencing or standing in awe of God because what they're doing is they're taking the doctrines of men, uh, kind of the, the way that people are, are thinking about religion, and they're putting that forward as true religion. That's what Jesus is saying here. So sebo. The third word is latreia. And it's even more rare. It shows up five times, and it means servitude or religious worship or temple worship. So this is a formal kind of worship, and it really has to look a lot more like service, um, submitting, the way Jesus might have talked about with washing the feet of other people. Because if I, Jesus, am washing your feet and no servant is above their master, then this is the, the fitting and kind of appropriate way that you should behave. That's probably the idea that's going on here. But it's kind of a formal word, and it shows up five times in John, Romans, which is where we're at today, and then Hebrews. Um, it's a pretty rare form of worship. So here's Romans 9.4. This is Paul again earlier in this same book, and this is a different example of how he's using this word latreia. So uh, talking about the Israelites, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. So Latreia, the temple worship, this formal system of coming into the temple where God dwells and, and going through this sacrificial kind of nature of being cleansed and then being able to render your worship to God. It shows up also in Hebrews 9, 6. Some people think that Paul wrote Hebrews, uh, but it's kind of one of these underdetermined things in, in Scripture. And uh, in Hebrews it says, when these things had been prepared in this way, the priests used to enter regularly into the outer room to perform their ritual services, Latreus, um, unto God. So this idea of the book of Hebrews looking back to the Old Testament and talking about the priests that used to work in that tabernacle or the temple and that they would enter regularly into the outer room of the temple, not the inner room or the Holy of Holies, and they would perform ritual services there. And this is the word that shows up in our, our kind of um, passage today as worship. So when we talk about worship in Romans 12.1, we're talking about this form, not either of the other ones that are more of a reverence or awe or emotion-based thing. We're talking about a ritual service, a religious service, actions of serving or sacrifice that are being performed. Does that make sense? Um, so if I went back to Romans 12.1, I want to read it one more time. And it just simply says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper religious service. This is your true and proper religious sacrifice. This is your true and proper way of going about performing religious duties. 
So this idea of being a living sacrifice, motivated by God's love, God, um, we love because God first loved us, this idea of, of presenting ourselves forward now is the right way to live um, as a Christian. This is the argument that Paul is making. Now if I switch real quick, because I think it's helpful to looking at the English word worship and breaking it down one more way, uh, the Anglo-Saxon, which is where we get our English word uh, worship, actually says worship. So worship, this English word, is, is really just kind of this massaging and contraction of this idea of worship, meaning that something was worthy uh, or had worth and you were going to ascribe to that thing the worth that it had intrinsic to itself. So worship, okay? So here's the interesting thing, the idea of worship is predicated on something being big, worthy, uh, full of, of kind of gravitas, and then we treat it thusly. So if I ask the question, where do you go with the greatest pains in your life, the greatest pain that you're feeling, the greatest frustration that you're feeling, the greatest hurt that you're feeling, where do you take it? Um, I would say you, you probably take it to the person that you love the most, the person that has the most gravitas in your life. Where do you take the best stories, the, the this happened today and I can't wait to tell someone, the exciting things, the joy, the happiness that you have, where do you take that in your life? And I'd probably say it's the same person. It's the same person. You take it to the one that you love the most, that has the, the most gravitas in your life, the, the one that, that you ascribe worth to, they kind of are dominant in, in your hierarchy here. And you take your greatest pain and your greatest pleasure and you take it to that person because you love them, which is what it means to kind of be this, this, this person of worth in your life. Does that make sense? Okay. What is really going on here is that Paul is making this argument that based on all that is going on in your life and, and in the world, the, the story of God to reconcile his people back to himself in Christ Jesus, this beautiful narrative that's in Scripture, because of that he is simply saying you should understand and, and ascribe worth to God, a gravitas to God. You should love God. That's what Jesus said, right? That the greatest commandment is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we read that and we kind of go, I get it, and it seems to make sense, and I believe it to be true, but I don't really know what that means. Like, what does it mean for me to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, strength? Like, in practical terms, what does that mean? And so we kind of just file it away as like this is somehow the biggest verse or one of the biggest verses in the Bible and I, I know to answer it and I think that maybe the way I'm living my life like counts that way but we don't really ever parse out what it would look like to love God fully. And what Paul is simply saying is that, that the love of God ascribing worth to God, that God would be in that center place that we would take all our pain and all our pleasure to him because he matters that much, that when we worship him, it's, it's because we've offered our lives fully in service to him and that that is a way 
to make sure that we're ascribing our love and our worth to God. So what does it mean to love God? What does it mean that God is worthy? What does it mean to worship God? What does it mean to live like a Christian? It means that you've submitted your life onto the altar. You walk off the other side as a living sacrifice. So here's the question I think we should be asking because it's the one I think we wrestle with the most. Um, Sacrifice is a funky word. Does it mean that I make one big sacrificial act like, okay, God, you got me. I'll go be a a missionary somewhere. This is what I thought when I I first was, was like all of a sudden wholeheartedly committed to God. God got a hold of my life. I had this gnawing kind of, like, does this mean I now have to go be a missionary? And I, and I knew I didn't feel like I should, but I felt like that was the right like, religious answer. And so I kind of hid from God going, I don't want to really ask this question of God because I think you know, I'm afraid of the answer that he'll give me. And what I realized is, is I think that that's sometimes the guilt that we put on Christians is that if you're a true Christian or a really good Christian, you're going to make this one big giant sacrifice and that, and that that somehow settles the score. Have you, have you ever felt like that? Um, that's also why that passage of the rich young ruler is so hard for us. When the guy comes to Jesus and Jesus says, take all that you have, sell it, give it to the poor, then come and follow me. This one giant sacrificial act and we read that and we go, does that mean I'm supposed to like take everything, cobble it up, sell it, give it away? But if I'm a husband, if, if I'm a father, if, if I'm, I'm a friend, if people are depending on me, like if, is that my call? Like what does that really look like? And so we see these examples of big giant sacrifices being called forth from people that believe in God and we, we don't know how to wrestle with those because we're afraid that somehow that's going to be us even though... I would argue we haven't been called to that. But we kind of have this standard here. Or on the other extreme, um, we get this idea that if we offer our lives fully to God uh, as, as kind of in a sacrificial way, that it's going to mean that every single decision, every single day, now it has to be like filtered through some God grid And anything fun or that we would have been inclined to do, we can't do, we actually have to steer it back towards God. So life is going to be really duty bound. And and that's because God is a killjoy and he, all he wants from me is sacrifice, sacrifice, uh, sacrifice and service. And I begin to be very sour. And when I see people being happy, I'm frustrated because why do they get to be happy if they're a Christian too? Shouldn't they be miserable like me? That all they should have to, uh, to think about in their life is more and more duty, more and more obedience. And so we kind of live with these two poles, don't we? That there's this big giant standard that we got to meet or somehow we have have to kind of pattern ourselves that every single thing in life is going to be hugely sacrificial to God and he's going to take everything. And so we come to a verse like this and it goes, I should become a sacrificial person that I'm giving God my life back, that it belongs to him, that this is what it means to love God, to worship God, to act or, or, or behave religiously or as a Christian. And, and I don't understand what that means. And so it shuts me down. Again, I put all these thoughts into kind of the, the bucket of I know the right answers and I hope I'm kind of living into some of it, but I can't really embrace it. 
And so I want to I wanna wrestle with the idea that maybe it's neither of those extremes. For some of you, um, maybe. I don't think it's ever the duty, duty. Well, it depends on what God's doing in your life. And for some of you, it is a big sacrifice for selling all you have or going to the mission field. There's somebody in our church right now that's contemplating or on the, the track to being a missionary. And so that does happen. But I think that the majority of it exists in this middle space. So I want to look at Romans 12 too. So this is the next verse that Paul gives us. The next verse that Paul gives us, I think, maps out this middle space between the two extremes and it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What's going on here? So the world has a certain way of of telling us how we should act, that we should choose ourselves um, as often as we can, whatever makes you happy, um, the, the kinds of phrases that we, we hear kicked around or we might even use. And this bends us to a, a certain kind of looking after oneself kind of life, which is very different than treating your life as a living sacrifice. And so Paul is saying, look, the way the world bends, you, you, that's not what we're going to do here. So be transformed. In other words, you have to have a paradigm shift, an aha moment that always bending towards pleasure It doesn't really work out. It's like trying to suck satisfaction out of dirt. And we begin to realize this. How come my life continually gets screwed up every time I I give into a certain way of living? Like, I don't understand it because it always looks so pleasing, cotton candy. It always looks so pleasing on the front end, but it always gives me nothing in return. This is the way of the world, and, and we're not supposed to be seduced by that anymore. We go, no, I know that to be bankrupt and empty, and I'm supposed to have a different kind of mindset, and I'm supposed to come over here and understand that I'm, I am a living sacrifice. I've given my life over to God, and as I do that, I am therefore able to test and approve. So I look at things as they come to me. I look at decisions, I look at relationships, I, lo- I, look at, I look at circumstances, I look at communities, I look at people, I look at friends, I look at the future, I look at the present. I look at things and I hold them in front of me and I say, with my paradigm of understanding that I'm trying to live a life of sacrifice and service to God, that God matters most to me, that he's worthy of having that dominant place, that that's the place that I put people that I love that everything bends back there, my greatest pain, my greatest pleasure, I take it to him, that I look at things through that grid and I evaluate them. And as I'm evaluating them, I'm able to test and then approve, say, this is right. This is good. This is true. To the best of my knowledge, this is the way. These are the people. This is how. It says just that, test and approve what God's will is. Now, it's not what God's will is for your life. It's what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will in the singular. So you've heard me say it before. I think the wrong question that we ask often in spiritual circles is, what is God's will for my life? 
God only has one will, and it's a big enough will that we all get to serve it, living, living sacrifices, that we sacrifice for his plan of redemption, his plan of reconciliation. The question we should be asking is, God, give me wisdom, just like Solomon, and give me guidance as I wrestle with these decisions that I'm faced so that I can best live into your will. So the question isn't, what is God's will for my life, but how do I serve God's will with my life. Does that make sense? There's a George McDonald quote I love. Uh, maybe we can put it on the screen. George McDonald uh, is the one that C.S. Lewis said was his mentor through his, his books and his writing. George McDonald was a Scottish pastor. And he said this, I find that doing the will of God leaves me no time for disputing about his plans. I find that doing the will of God leaves me no time for disputing about his plans. Um, the idea here is that it's not I'm going to test and approve my options and then wrestle with God to go, um, this one that you seem to be um, confirming to me or, or guiding me into doesn't really seem like it fits my plan for my life. In fact, it actually seems like a really bad idea. In fact, most people that know me might even actually say it looks foolish or, or confusing, or that they wouldn't understand it. And so we tend to bring things here and then spend a year, five years, 10 years, 20 years. I'll talk to people over lunch sometimes, and they'll come in, and they'll explain their life to me, and, and they'll explain this wrestling for like 20 years, and, and it's fascinating. It's all one big wrestling because they felt like in college or when they, they were first married or at age 30 or, or with their singleness or something else, that they heard God say something. It was faint. It was a whisper. that They kind of knew that it sounded right or holy or good or true, pleasing and acceptable, but it didn't really make sense. And so they argued with it. And then the next 10 years or 20 years, and they come to me going, my life is just this mess and it's confusing and it's difficult and stressful and, and I'm, I'm wrestling with God. But as, I, as I'm listening and I, I kind of try to mirror back to them, you haven't changed your wrestling with God at all in 20 years. You're still running from the conversation God was trying to have with you. And my guess is if you had just yielded and said, God, I'll trust you that he probably would have taken and resolved that tension really quick. Um, the, the challenge of faith is always biggest right when you're on the edge of the diving board, not when you're in the air, right? Right? I'm saying right a lot because I'm trying to <laughs> drive deep into a verse, which I never do. I'm always hopelessly big picture, um, because I like that and I like history and I'm intuitive and all that. Today I'm trying to drill really, really deep into one verse, even, even brought out some Greek, because I, I want us to understand that the idea here is that as we're in this relationship with God, we're wrestling not with what his will is for your life, but as he guides and instructs and leads us into his will that is going to include us and that that should be a cause for celebration. See, we get to sacrifice, though, and that doesn't sound like celebration. Um, so I'll take it just a little further. Here's the interesting thing with the, the things that we love. Sacrifice comes built in. Did you know this? Sacrifice comes built in. Just think of your, your best friends, 
If they call you today and they need you, what are you going to do? You're going to give up whatever you're going to do, and you'll sacrifice your plans to be there for them. So the fact that you allowed a best friend into your life comes with the fact that you now are going to, whether you like it or not, you're tied or bound to, to this idea of sacrifice. If you have kids, guess what comes with it? Death. It's just pure dying to self. And it starts with sleepless nights, and it starts with the crying, and it starts with all of that, but then it begins to look like, no, it's my joy to drive you somewhere. I forgot that in the moment, Mary Joy. I'm, 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 I only have an ounce of maturity. I've never claimed more, but I'm really good at saying sorry. I've, I've learned that as a coping mechanism. Um, it covers over a multitude of evil. So, Mary Joy, I, I lost sight in that moment that it's a joy for me to sacrifice for you because I love you, right? Um, with our spouse, with um, our immediate family, and when they go through trials, with this community, with our nation. Why does United Airlines, every time I get on, say, if you're a uniformed service member, um, come on first? Because as a society, we realize there's a sacrifice that comes with that. What about our servicemen, our first responders? We give them honor because we know that their job, different than some other jobs, comes with a gravitas that they're willing to lay their life down or go into harm's way for this community. And so they've made a decision that, that, that brings with it sacrifice. So we, we honor them. Um, here's a, a hard one. I'll, I'll bring it back up again. But your singleness. Or the job you're in that you don't want to be in. Who are you sacrificing for? I would argue that you're sacrificing your life to God and saying, what you've given me and how you lead me, I will be content with that. And with who I am and what I have, I will serve you. And as you lead, to the best of my ability, I will follow in faith because I love you. And I will render that religious sacrifice back to you. That I will manifest to other people that I can go through these trials with joy. I will man manifest to other people that I can learn contentment despite the challenges. I will manifest to other people what it means to live by faith. Now that brings up another question. And I'm getting so abstract that I'm not going to ask you to tell me what the question is. I'll just tell you. Um, when we take on sacrifice because of willingly or unwillingly in our life, what that simply means is this. Sacrifice is a willingness to be inconvenienced. Sacrifice is a willingness to be inconvenienced. Another way of saying that would be it's a willingness for interruptions. It's a willingness for annoyance. It's a willingness for sacrifice. It's a willingness to truly love something. Sacrifice is the willingness to truly love something. I didn't know Ben was going to sing it, but he sang a song and he said, love costs everything, but takes everything, but doesn't cost a thing. 
Am I getting, is there anyone in here that heard, heard that? <laughs> Love takes everything but doesn't cost a thing, something like that? Loses everything but doesn't cost a thing? Loses all but doesn't lose a thing. See, I think I just argued for that, didn't I? It's like a, it's exactly what I've been saying. Love <laughs> takes everything but doesn't really take anything. I don't, you know what I'm saying? There's a reason they don't let me sing. <laughs> Poetry is far from my lips. Um, so sacrifice is another way of saying love. That's why it's so hard for us to understand what love is in America because we define love by an emotion. And when Jesus defines love, he says true love is cashed out thusly. Um, thusly is King James language, it goes good with the Greek. Um, it's like, you know, food pairing with wine or something. Um, you put King James. It, it, Jesus defines it thusly. That when you lay down your life for a friend or a brother, that that's true love. See, that's sacrifice. Jesus defines love through sacrifice. And sacrifice is caught up with this concept of love. They go together. So, here's the hard part of this whole thing. If love or our concern for things is an invitation to suffering, if my having children is an invitation to suffering, if my offering my life to God in service and in love to Him is an invitation to my suffering. Because we will suffer. We will sacrifice or lay down our lives. If that's an invitation, it's pretty hard when it goes unacknowledged. That's why when I was driving Mary Joy around on Friday, or when I get grumpy at work, and Kip will tell you this, he's walked with me for 10 years, it's because I'm feeling a high amount of sacrifice and, and I just want to look miserable enough that someone might see it. Because I'm good that way. I, I, I look miserable enough so that someone will see it. Why? Because when I suffer, because I love I want it to be acknowledged because that's in some sense the, the fitting or proper payback or acknowledgement that we get. And if we don't, and if it hurts that we're unacknowledged, why does it matter so much when sacrifice goes unacknowledged? Because it simply means that we're suffering in silence. That I'm suffering, I'm giving up my life, and I'm doing it in a vacuum, and that's lonely. Here's another way of saying it, that I'm loving in silence or in a vacuum. And to love alone is to experience pain. Right? If you're a mom in this room, I guarantee you know what I'm saying right now. If we suffer in silence, that's painful. If we love in silence, alone, and nobody sees it, nobody acknowledges it, that is painful. When we experience that kind of pain, we have two choices. 
Here are the two choices. The first choice is to go, it is worth it. My child is worth it. My husband or my wife is worth it. My family is worth it. My friends are worth it. God is worth it. And we treat it as worship. This pain, this loneliness, God, I know you see it. I know you understand it. And it's my worship to you. Or my family is worth it. Or we go another way. And this way is called self-pity. Self-pity is when you're in pain and you feel the irritation of, of the, the sacrifice or the suffering and the annoyance of not being acknowledged. And you begin to go, it's really not fair. I work harder than anyone else. It's really not fair. I keep giving and giving, but nobody gives back. It's really not fair. This isn't what I had for my day. It's really not fair. I'm doing this with one hand tied behind my back because nobody understands my health or my energy levels or my mental state or the challenges or the other burdens that I'm carrying, and it's really not fair. And self-pity is a bottomless pit. And self-pity turns its gaze where? On me, who's doing the sacrificing. So it's no longer a tribute or an act of worship or an act of love to some person or, or, or group or city or anything in our life. It's simply something that's being taken from me and I wish it wasn't. Or, I, or you guys, I don't need to define self-pity, right? It's, it's a bottomless pit. God says, um, one of the things that we see all throughout Scripture is that God hates being forgotten. We see it with the word remember, 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 or you did not remember. And A.W. Tozer, I, I'm not going to get the quote right, but he says something to that effect, that there's nothing that, that God seems to hate more than the simple act of us forgetting him. So if we forget God in the Old Testament, yet God continues to pursue us and pursues us all the way to his act of love at the cross, Romans 1 through 11, that even though we don't acknowledge his sacrifices or love for us, he continues to love. If God can do that, then God knows what it feels like when you're suffering in silence or when you're loving in a lonely way. Does that make sense? God, if no one else knows, knows. And it can build our relationship and our intimacy with God when we take the sacrifice and the love and we say, this is my lifestyle. It doesn't mean that it's one giant sacrifice. It doesn't mean that everything is miserable. It means I'm willing to be inconvenienced because I've been willing to let people into my life. I'm willing to love them and I'm loving you, God, because this is how I want to live. Not like the world tells me, but like you tell me. And in doing so, as I suffer, and it's a very lonely place, I know that you know. It's what the Psalms articulate over and over again is the loneliness of the life of faith and praying it up to God. The, the Psalms are the words God has given us to speak back to him so that we would understand he knows what our first person experience feels like. So God knows. That's why this is really interesting. 
Romans 12.1 and 12.2. There's only one non-pronoun that shows up twice in these verses. We'll put them on the screen. First one, if you can see it. Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Next verse, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's the only word that shows up twice is this word pleasing. God acknowledges our commitment to live as a living sacrifice. In other words, God acknowledges our worship. In other words, God acknowledges our love for him and for others. So no matter how much we suffer kind of in silence or sacrifice, here's the fascinating thing that keeps us from being duty-bound or miserable or falling into self-pity too much, and it's not on the screen anymore, but it's this, this yellow word that this is pleasing to God. The joy I get is knowing that God knows. The joy I get in giving is knowing that God values. The joy I get in serving is that if nobody else is paying attention or acknowledging, at the end of the day when I'm alone with God, is that God is with me, God is for me, God continues to walk with me, and there is joy in that relationship. As my favorite verse goes, Jesus says, um, remain with me, um, and you do this, Uh, as I have remained with the Father, and you do this by obeying my commands, and I tell you this so that my joy is in you and that your joy will be complete. In other words, remain with me as I have remained with the Father. When we're close to God, by living a different kind of way and and worshiping a different kind of way and pursuing the, the pattern for my life a different kind of way, that then somehow my joy is wrapped up in that. So what does it mean to live as a living sacrifice? It means to worship, which means to love, which means to sacrifice, which means to trust God with your joy, believing that he sees, he knows, and he cares. Do you understand? There's one last quote here from C.S. Lewis, and it says this, many things such as loving, going to sleep, or behaving unaffectedly, are done worst when we try hardest to do them. They're done worst when we try hardest to do them. Just picture laying in bed and telling yourself over and over to go to sleep, right? Um, living a life of worship, a life of love unto God, a life of sacrifice is, is going to be accomplished best when w- what we're seeing is God in all his glory, God in all his love for us. This verse, these two verses that Paul put here didn't begin Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Now, brothers and sisters, give your lives to God because that's what you owe him and uh, that's what's right and true. Paul waits until chapter 12 because he's saying, fix your eyes first. Fix your eyes first on the God that we have 
The God that even when we forget him or don't acknowledge his love or sacrifice for us continues to pursue us. And it's that God, that object that you look at. And as you do that, and to the best of your ability, when you, when you continue to do that, even when you want to go a different way with, like, I don't know that I like what God's asking me to do, trust God. And as we continue to put God in that place of worth and gravitas, when we do that, the life of sacrifice comes a little bit more easy. We don't look at sacrifice and go, duty is my future and my calling um, and my misery. We look at God and say, faith is my calling and my opportunity and my joy. And so as we come to take communion, and I don't remember which bread is, I think all the bread is, all the bread is safe now. Um, (laughs) So as we come to take communion, we're, we're starting there. We're fixing our minds in, in front of us and understanding that the sacrifice, um, that the love follows. We love because God first loved us. This right here is the, the God first loved us part. And so as you come, I'm not going to have you write it down, but I want you to take the thing that you are, are willing to put in front of God and say, I'll sacrifice this to you. This pain, this decision, this trial, this heartache, this frustration, this thing that I just don't have the energy to sustain with, whatever it is, as you come, you're trading and saying, God, I'm going to unburden myself with that and know that you have provided grace that is sufficient for me at the cross, that your love is sufficient for me. And so I'm going to pray right now. The band's going to come out and sing. But as you feel led, Come with what you're going to lay at the altar and then take and receive the body broken for you, the blood shed for you, that we can be renewed in mind and spirit to continue to walk by faith. Father, we want to give you our lives more quickly than than we're able to. So the simple prayer I have this morning for this community that I'm bound up with in love is that you would give us just enough faith, enough trust today to take a step forward, to put something out for you, that we would be living sacrifices knowing that it's pleasing to you, that you acknowledge it, that you see it, and that we'd walk away with the joy knowing that we're in this together with you and that your grace truly is sufficient. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.